Hello, I'm Brent Siddle, and welcome back to the God Story podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about a favorite subject of mine, the great 18th century preacher, theologian, and philosopher, Jonathan Edwards. And our guest is James Saladin, who's the rector of Emmanuel Anglican Church in New York. James has a new book out on Edwards called Jonathan Edwards and deification if you're in England, and I believe deification if you're in America, possibly. Reconciling Theosis and the Reformed Tradition, and it's published by IVP, InterVarsity Press in America, and James joins me on Zoom from New York today. Hi, James, how are you? I am well. It's great to be here with you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for coming to talk to us about this amazing and awesome character called Jonathan Edwards. Now, who was Jonathan Edwards? Oh, fantastic. Great question. So Jonathan Edwards, well, you just mentioned Jonathan Edwards was an 18th century pastor, theologian, philosopher. Uh, He even tried to do a bit of science, uh, submitted some uh, scientific uh, essays, although they didn't get uh, published. So that was a bit of a disappointment for him. But he was just an intellectual powerhouse uh, and one of the most influential theologians and philosophers in in the United States or what would become the United States. And so his impact uh, on especially the Christian world has been really profound uh, for the last 200 years. So, And most of us know him primarily through the fact that he was tied up with the great 18th century revival in America and indeed extraordinary experiences of the Holy Spirit in America throughout this revival. Absolutely. I mean, he published famously um, a a work called The Surprising Work of God in uh, Northampton, Massachusetts. He was a pastor in this town, Northampton, Massachusetts, during its colonial era. And his church, his parish, his congregation experienced just a remarkable uh, revival, awakening of spiritual life. And he wrote the story down and it, it got published in Boston and then it got sent to London and it got sent all around the Atlantic world. And it really ignited a, a desire for those sorts of revivals to happen elsewhere. And so it became a catalytic, maybe an igniter, a spark uh, that, that led to what in the United States is called the Great Awakening or the Evangelical Rela- Awakening in, in, uh, in the United Kingdom. So it was a big deal. Which George Whitfield was also involved in traveling over from uh, England, wasn't he? Absolutely. And he he met with uh, Jonathan Edwards, stayed in his home, preached in his church, uh, and they influenced each other uh, some in some remarkable ways. And John Wesley would read Edwards's work, be influenced, edited uh, some of his work for his circuit writing Methodist preachers edited out the Calvinism in some instances, so he could make it um, uh, a little bit more palatable, uh, but but was influenced really significantly by this local pastor in Massachusetts. We can't have any Calvinism, brother. That's, that's a shocking thing. <laughs> it, <laughs> right, 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 right. And we should also mention for folk who wanted to follow this up before we get on to the whole business of theosis and yeah. Hollywood's thought about this, that it was wrote a marvelous um, monograph or uh, preached a series of sermons on the revival and how you could tell whether a revival was a genuine work of the spirit or not. Can you tell right. us just a brief bit about that? Yeah. So he did a bunch of works that help that are aimed at helping discern 
what is uh, a true work of God and what's uh, not a true work of God? What or what might what what is an ambiguous? Uh, what are ambiguous signs and 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 what are we really looking for to when we're uh, uh, looking at at some phenomenon that's happening? So um, he has a work called Some Thoughts Concerning Revival, but his really famous work that I encourage everybody to read. It's just a wonderful classic. is called uh, A Treatise on the Religious Affections. And um, it, it's a commitment to get through it, but certainly anybody that is in ministry, anybody that has uh, the, uh, the care of souls as part of your calling, I know a few works that are more insightful in uh, developing the gift of discernment in, in a minister than uh, the religious affections, because what he does is he says, hey, listen, uh, a lot of things happen uh, in revivals, a lot of things happen in uh, church ministry, but what are the things that are, you know, telltale indicators uh, that God's work is, that God is really at work here? And what are things that, that, that are ambiguous? It, it may be God, it may not be God. How do you tell the difference? The religious affections is a remarkable theology trying to answer that question. Mm. Okay, well, we'll come back to Edwards in just a minute, but we've got to deal yeah. with the subject of your book or part of the subject of your book, which is this mm. doctrine of theosis or deification or deification. Now, what on earth is theosis? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. And it really should, I think for most Christians, the word deification and theosis uh, raises a little bit of at least some yellow flags, a little bit of a warning. And I think it should, because the words mean theosis and deification. They both mean uh, to be made God, to become God, which is a bracing concept to say the least, right? I mean, if you think about uh, Genesis chapter three, uh, the serpent's temptation includes eat this fruit and you'll become like God. And so there's a way in which in the Christian tradition, that kind of uh, primal temptation includes a temptation to become like God through a false means. Uh, so it should cause some pause. And monotheism has always really, really jumped up and down about the fact that the creator and the creature, the one who creates and the ones who are created, we don't fuse with each other. However, having said that, there's a long Christian tradition and a mainline Christian tradition, a, a, an Orthodox Christian tradition that describes Christian salvation in terms of uh, be, uh, becoming like God through the work of Christ and by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And there are certain passages that 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 really kind of emphasize this. So one is Second uh, Peter one four through these great promises we become partakers of the divine nature and I, my, my guess is that i mean I, I know this is the case with me i've in the past read that and kind of take my breath in a little bit like what in the world could that possibly mean we become partakers of the divine nature or or there are other spots where paul for instance ephesians 3 19 says in his prayer his great prayer which warms the heart of every believer when you get to that part of, of, of Ephesians, concludes with, uh, so that we may uh, be filled with the fullness of God. Filled with the fullness of God? What in the world? So what do these things mean? And there's a long line of Christian tradition going back to the very early centuries where Christians would say, especially, it's especially associated with the, with the church fathers, sometimes particularly with the Eastern Greek church fathers, although not exclusively with them, who would describe salvation 
something like this. The son of God became what we are, human, so that we could become what he is, the child of God. Or St. Athanasius even says it more uh, bluntly in on the incarnation. He says the logos became human so that humans could be, or God became human so that humans could become God. Or sometimes it's phrased like this, what Christ is by nature, we are made by grace. And so there's this idea that central to the mission of Jesus, central to the mission of the Holy Spirit is that God is reaching out to sinners and doing everything necessary for them to be uh, drawn, not, not only to receive the forgiveness of sins, although that's central, but to be drawn into the fellowship of the Trinity itself um, in a way that's appropriate to our creaturely nature and status, but yet one that achieves real intimacy with God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so when those themes are, are at the center of your idea of salvation, we talk about it in terms of deification or theosis, God becoming human so that humans can partake of something of God's own goodness. Yes, and how, do the, how does the Eastern Orthodox tradition understand that? Does it, does it go as far as saying that we partake of the divine essence? Right. Brilliant question. So the, the East, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, makes much of this uh, framework, makes much of the idea of deification and theosis. And uh, just like all of us, um, they need to be very, very careful that they don't fuse the creator and the creature. And so one of the ways that they do that is they make a distinction between God's essence and God's energies. God's essence is the thing that makes God God. I mean, it's a terrible way to phrase it, but it's the thing, it's God's fundamental being. It's, it, we, we say in the, in the Nicene Creed that the son is uh, perhaps of one being with the father or or of one substance with the Father, shares the Father's essence. And so classical Christianity has always said that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all share the, the identical same essence. And so in Eastern Orthodoxy, they would say um, that essence cannot be shared with something that is created with a creature. But God can share his energies, which have to do with his activity towards creation. That God is, when God, God as God acts towards creation, reaches out towards creation, and that creation, uh, through the work of the, uh, the Son and through the work of the Spirit, are able to partake in the divine energies. And so that's how they manage the creator-creature distinction, but also put them in, in, uh, in a significant and intimate relatedness. So presumably... I think you argue in the book that Edwards must have read or been familiar with the, some of the Eastern Orthodox tradition and thinking on this. Well, so the reason that question comes up is because one of the surprising things that uh, readers of Edwards discover is you read through Jonathan Edwards and you find him saying things that sounds a lot like what you expect to find in Eastern Orthodoxy. He says things that sound an awful lot like deification or theosis. And so that has led some Edwards scholars to say, hmm, Edwards, despite the fact that he's reformed, he's a Calvinist, all that kind of stuff, he is sharing some themes with Eastern Orthodoxy. Did he perhaps borrow these themes somehow from Eastern Orthodoxy? Is he somehow influenced by, for instance, St. Gregory Palamas, who's one of the key Eastern Orthodox thinkers? Is he somehow departing from his reformed Calvinist roots? 
in, in making some of these claims. Uh, and in my research, th th those are some of the questions that I had when I came to do my research on this book. And, and I found that, that the first way to answer that is, is no, that he's, he does not, he is not reading the, uh, the Greek fathers in any great detail. It was on his list of books he really wanted. But we, but we don't have him citing uh, those authors. He did read people who did, if that makes sense. Mm. So he was reading people like uh, Henry Moore and some others, uh, some of the Cambridge Platonists, and they were they had more direct access to the Greek fathers. Um, nobody was reading Palamas, to my knowledge. But what one of the things that ends up being kind of interesting about Jonathan Edwards is he, what I argue in my book, is that he comes to these conclusions not so much by borrowing from the East, but rather through developing his own tradition and interrogating his own tradition and modifying his own tradition. So he, he really comes to it as a reformed Calvinist thinker. Yes. I mean, we're coming, we come on to talk about Edward's theology of special grace. I think it's true or special grace, isn't it? The, the term that's mm -hmm. used in the book. How did yep. the theology of special grace stem from his own experience of God and indeed from uh, witnessing the conversion of somebody like David Brainerd? Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful question. Jonathan Edwards is sometimes described as the last of the Puritans and the first of the evangelicals. Um, I don't know that that's a helpful way to think of it, but it, it is helpful in the sense that he's, he is deeply shaped by the pure, the English speaking experiential reformed tradition. And we might call that the Puritan tradition. And it, the Puritans uh, were very, very uh, concerned with this miraculous inward work of God. So when, when uh, the classical Protestant tradition thinks about salvation, we want to jump up and down about God's grace that God in Christ uh, achieves absolutely everything for our eternal salvation, crucially through Jesus's death and resurrection. The Puritans, uh, and it wasn't just the Puritans, but the Puritans were part of a movement or a good example of a movement that said absolutely yes to all of that. And also said that part of God's grace is his breaking into the resistant sinner's heart works in the heart, transforms the heart, gives the faith that God wants to see, gives the faith that embraces God's gospel, God's grace, and then also renews the heart or gives new birth, regeneration, uh, changes us and transforms us from the inside out. And when they talked about the beginning of that experience, they talked about being uh, the, the, the gift of regeneration. And then as they talked about the growth in that experience, they talked about it in terms of sanctification, becoming holy over time. And then they, when they talk about the end of it, it's glorification mm. um, when we are with the Lord uh, in his glory. And so Edwards is following his tradition by asking the question, what does this experience look like? What explains this experience? What explains this remarkable transformation that can bring a sinner who is running away from God, who is actively opposed to God and can shift the heart, change the heart, uh, reorient the heart such that, 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 that person becomes, is united to Christ, becomes a saint and uh, prefers God over everyone else. That's a remarkable transformation. How does it happen? How did it happen in Paul on the Damascus Road? How did it happen in St. Augustine? 
And then for Edwards, uh, he himself has a remarkable experience of, uh, of having, as a young man, being shaped in the theological tradition of the Puritans, but is really resistant to it, doesn't like it, doesn't like the idea that God is sovereign, thinks it's a bad idea. And yet uh, he comes to a place where he sees the beauty of God in, in, in a way that, that is absolutely transformative. And, and David Brainerd, and I, I kind of highlight David Brainerd in the book, he similarly has this uh, season where he's seeking God, but he's seeking God in his own strength and it doesn't work. And then finally, God breaks in from above. And Jonathan Edwards wants to answer the question, what is happening there? What is that grace of God that transforms? Okay, well, what did Edwards mean then by special grace and where does he write about it? Yeah, great question. So in Edwards' tradition, he um, they made a distinction commonly uh, between two types of grace. There's one kind of grace that explains God's goodness towards creation, and it's often called common grace. Uh, God, God's goodness showers upon the righteous and the unrighteous, right? God's grace uh, you can see God's grace in the beauty of creation. You can see God's goodness and grace in the way the rain falls and crops grow. And, and that's true if you belong to the Lord, if you don't belong to the Lord. Um, you can see God's uh, goodness in just the gift of life. Um, you can see God's goodness in all manner of things, in the way God orchestrates the world and providence. And Edwards and his tradition call that common grace, uh, that grace which is given to, to all of creation, but it's not a grace that saves us. There's a second kind of grace, and that's called special grace. Special grace is that unique grace that reaches into a sinner, gives them the ability, and moves them to embrace Christ by faith, and then remains operative in that person. Uh, throughout the person's entire life, preserving them in faith in Christ, and then ultimately to all eternity, sanctifying them and glorifying them. So that special grace is very targeted and unique. It's the grace that saves. And how does um, Edwards define the special grace in his writings? And how does it differ from the Eastern Orthodox tradition that we've just been talking about? Yeah, wonderful. So in uh, a number of sermons and in a work called Treatise on Grace, and he also talks about it in the Religious Affections, talks about it in a lot of places. He defines special grace in a few different ways, but a key way is this. He says, special grace is a communication and participation in the divine fullness, which is a mouthful. But what it allows them to do is it gives them a line. Special grace is a communication and participation in the divine fullness. It allows him to have that thesis or that, that, that line, which um, Edwards didn't have a computer, he didn't double click. But if we think of it in terms of a set of links that you could double click on each word, you could reach down and uh, mine the depths of what he means by this concept of special grace. And it turns on this idea of the divine fullness. And I kind of referred to that earlier in, um, uh, Paul mentions it in Ephesians chapter three. And for Edwards, the divine fullness, uh, when, when he talks about fullness, he, he says the divine fullness is that good, which God has in himself. 
which is kind of a crazy thing to think about. But if you think about, if you're familiar with Ephesians chapter three, that prayer really helps. If you remember that prayer, um, Paul says, I, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. He says, I asked it out of the riches of his glory. And it's almost like Paul is, is, is saying, father, uh, give us what, give us something of your riches. Father, give us, give us what you value most. And, and then if we ask, well, wow, what is it that God the father values most? Well, in the rest of the prayer, Paul says, um, strengthen us by your Holy Spirit such that we may know Christ. And so there's a way in which the implication in that, in that Paul, Pauline prayer is that the thing that the father values most is his son and his spirit. God's greatest treasure is God. And what Paul is asking for in that prayer is that God would give us his greatest treasure, which is God, that God would give God to us, that God the Father would give himself by giving us his son and his spirit. And for Edwards, his whole doctrine of the Trinity, and he spends a lot of time unpacking the doctrine of the Trinity and interrogating the doctrine of the Trinity and asking hard questions about it. But in his doctrine of the Trinity, his doctrine of the Trinity in a way becomes his theory of salvation in a significant way that God, the father and God, the son are bound together with each other in a bond of infinite love. And that infinite love actually is the Holy spirit, God, the father and God, the son bound together in the spirit spirit is God's infinite mutual love between the father and son. And that in grace, uh, God, in a sense, repeats that dynamic within the life of the saint so that God by the spirit unites the believer to Jesus Christ so that Jesus and the believer who, what he, what Edwards calls a saint, Jesus and the saint are bound together in a mutual bond of love. And that bond of love is the Holy spirit. So that the thing that's happening in the Trinity infinitely happens between Jesus and the saint finitely with, um, with, with limited, uh, with, with limited measure. And so because there is a, a, a repeating of what is happening in God is happening between the saint and Jesus. Uh, there's, it's a real way it, 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 we are receiving in a finite way, God's own fullness, that thing, which is, uh, so wonderful and good and most treasured in God. God is his best gift. In salvation. Okay. How do we reconcile Edward's view of grace with the Reformed tradition of which he was part? Yeah. So in the book, uh, I mentioned how a lot of people, a lot of Reformed thinkers will come to Edwards on these themes and say, hmm, this doesn't sound very Reformed. There's two aspects of that. I argue that, that we should think of it as Edwards modifying his Reformed tradition, but doing it in a sympathetic way. You know, when, when you're in a tradition, you can um, change the tradition in such a way that you're rejecting it. And you're saying, ah, I'm going to, I'm going to barrel out of the, out of the boundaries and I'm going to overturn it, or I'm going to modify it so much so that it's clearly a different thing. I don't think that's what Edwards was doing. Edwards is working within his reformed tradition. He values his reformed tradition and he's modifying it in at least two ways. On the one hand, he's modifying it so that he can reinforce it against its old traditional polemical opponents. 
So the reform tradition, like a lot of traditions, is developed in part by its arguments, right? Uh, you mentioned, you know, Calvinism, Arminianism. There, the, there's a classic ar argument there. Uh, how how central is free will in the life of a saint? Uh, how central is God's sovereignty? You know, there, there, there's a debate that happens there. Edwards develops his doctrine of special grace in part to push against Arminianism, to hold it at bay. In the 18th century, Arminianism was really, really growing and, and, and was becoming more and more fashionable. So he wants to hold that at bay. And that's a really reformed thing to do. On the other hand, there were other groups at his time uh, that wanted, uh, they were called enthusiasts. They were, they were so focused on the on the union between God and humanity that they sort of uh, fused God with humanity or few tried to, in their minds, fuse humanity with God. And so Edwards wants to push back against that. And it, that's a very reformed thing to do, to push back against that impulse to fuse God and humanity. But then, so in part, his doctrine of special grace is very reformed because it reinforces uh, his tradition over and against its, its traditional opponents. But the other thing that it does is Edwards, I argue that Edwards, his doctrine of special grace is seeking to synchronize three classic Christian reformed doctrines. The doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of special grace. So we've talked about those a little bit, but the third one is the doctrine of creation's purpose. So if, if any of the listeners grew up in a Presbyterian context, they may be familiar with uh, the Westminster Catechism. And, and, and one of the famous questions is, uh, what is the chief, chief end of man? And, and the, the answer is the chief end of man is to uh, glorify God and enjoy him forever. And Edwards made much of the idea that God created this universe for his glory. And he has this remarkable book called The End of Creation. And in this book, he describes, makes an argument that all the entire created universe is created uh, for God's glory. But the particular way you see that unfold is through this process of special grace, where God pours out his own self in the gift of the Son and the Spirit upon the saints drawing them into a union with himself through the son and the spirit such that uh, God and the saints for all eternity grow into ever increasing intimacy with each other so that for all eternity, we're always going to be growing closer to God in intimacy and receiving more of his divine fullness and returning it back to him in this bond of mutual love, and that it's going to get ever more increased, but it's never going to reach a place where we become God, like God is God. And that's, according to Edwards, how creation will spend all eternity glorifying God. And so in doing that, he's synchronizing three classic reform doctrines, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of special grace, and the doctrine of creation's purpose, bring them all together and showing their internal coherence with each other. And so all of that leads me to conclude that Edwards' uh, doctrine of special grace and all its deification associations is actually very reformed. It's from his free reform tradition it's promoting his reformed tradition. It's synchronizing key 
doctrines of the Reformed tradition. Yeah. So I think you probably already answered it, James, but I was going to ask you how Edwards preserved this creator-creature distinction that we've been talking about that's so important. Great, great question. So uh, we mentioned earlier that the East uh, talks about the, the divine essence versus the divine energies, that we do not partake of the divine essence, but we do partake of the divine energies. Edwards does something that at least sounds similar. He says, we do not partake of the divine essence. All Christian orthodoxy is going gonna, is gonna to want to make that claim. We do not partake of the divine essence. But, says Edwards, we do partake of the divine fullness. And so what in the world uh, does that mean? Well, what it means, and we talked about this a little bit before, but the divine fullness is God, what God values most which is his son uh, in the bond of love with the spirit. And so what the saint receives is not the divine essence. The gift that God gives is the person of his incarnate son. And And the father gives the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit binds us to the incarnate Christ in a bond of mutual love. That love is the Holy Spirit. So for Edwards, when he says that, you know, first John says, God is love. For Edwards, that most specifically is a reference to the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is that bond of love between us and the incarnate Christ, and that that therefore the gift given isn't the divine essence. It's the person of the Son and the person of the Spirit. And so it gets into some sticky and complex philosophical, theological land to parse out some of those things, but that's the basic framework. Edwards' uh, shadow, uh, he, he casts a long shadow. And it's a, it, on the one hand, it's a wonderful legacy uh, of, of his theology and his, uh, his insights on doctrine, his spirituality. You can't think of, you know, American Protestant religion without thinking about Jonathan Edwards in some really significant ways. But at the same time, he held slaves and he enslaved people. In fact, and I mentioned this in the conclusion of the book, uh, one of the very first groups of new members at his Northampton congregation included a woman called Leah. And Leah was converted in the first wave of the Great Awakening. I mean, just consider certainly in the United States context, but really in world uh, Christianity, that's a big moment. The first wave of the Great Awakening, uh, Leah was converted. Um, However, Leah was enslaved by Jonathan Edwards and remained enslaved by Jonathan Edwards. And it seemed to me that uh, one of the wonderful things about Edwards' uh, vision of special grace is the dignity that it gives to humanity, uh, even natural humanity in Edwards' ideas, it God specifically designed the human person to receive special grace. God specifically designed humanity to be able to receive the divine fullness. To, we are a creature designed to receive an honor that for Edwards is beyond all nature, infinitely above created natural dignity. And that vision really should uh, take our breath away with respect to the dignity of the human person. And, and not only that, this woman, Leah um, herself, 
she wouldn't have been admitted to Edwards's church as a member unless he was persuaded that she really did partake of the divine nature, partake of the divine fullness. And yet she remained enslaved. It's interesting that, and so for America, certainly American Christianity has to wrestle with that. Uh, and, and, but it's interesting that Edwards's own son lamented it. He lamented very publicly uh, the fact that his, his, as he says, his father's uh, enslaved people and considered it a sin, in his words, worse than fornication. And so for, for, for us, certainly in the United States, as we, it seems to me that as we learn from, and it's right that we learn from Jonathan Edwards, uh, we should also lament his, his, his shortcomings, his sin, uh, not just shortcomings, his sin, in the same way that we do from David, in the Old Testament and any number of other characters from the biblical stories. And uh, the Christian tradition asks us to do that, asks us to learn from those who've gone before while lamenting and taking very, very, very seriously uh, their, their sin so that we're not, we, do, we never idolize those who have gone before, but we look from them to Christ, who is uh, ultimately our only hope in life and death. Did Edwards live to see the error of his ways? in that respect or did he die still convinced that it was acceptable slavery was acceptable so far as did we he, know did he actually believed that slavery was acceptable he must have done yeah yeah and we have some uh notes that he had that, that he drew out defending a a pastor nearby who enslaved people and who who his congregation was was saying hey this is a problem and edwards wrote some some defending it at the same time, though, there are little hints that it wasn't straightforward. You, you can find uh, notes in his blank Bible in Job, as I recall, where he is uh, saying that God will judge both, in a sense, masters and enslaved people uh, on the same basis, and that, that therefore that creates uh, some basis for a, a common ground between them and, and motivates treating uh, just warns masters about how they relate to the to their enslaved peoples but you don't get an an abolition conviction you do in the next generation those who were influenced most by edwards you do get uh, their conviction and strong conviction and so there's a way in which the next generation uses some of edwards's insights to go where edwards himself hadn't gone Mm. James Saladin, thank you for a very thorough and honest discussion of this amazing but deeply flawed man, obviously, Jonathan Edwards, like all of us. And his new book from IVP into Varsity Press is called Jonathan Edwards and Deification, I believe, if you're in England, and Deification, if you're in the States, Reconciling Theosis and the Reformed Tradition, published by IVP America. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.